A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. Dakota.com. Hey everyone, we got another reheat here for you, and this one comes from a listener request. Hello, Dan and everyone at the Sportville team. This is Elizabeth in Louisville, Kentucky. The episode that I would love to hear on reheat is the one featuring Samin Nosrap. I always enjoy her humor and her wisdom and would love to hear that episode again. Thanks so much. You got it, Elizabeth. This one's for you. And if there's an episode you'd like us to pull out of the freezer and reheat, send me a message at hello at sporkful.com. Thanks. And here's my conversation with Samin Nasrat. Samin, tell me this right off the bat. What is the secret to making great toast? Oh, okay. Okay. You're just going to go in with the hard-hitting questions. Yeah. This is Samin Nasrat. Her cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, is a bestseller. It has a whole page just on toast. And she writes for the New York Times, where she once began a column, My name is Samin, and I'm an artisanal bread hoarder. She also used to be a chef at Chez Panisse, one of the top fine dining restaurants in America. So, by some measures, Samin's fancy. But not too fancy for a nice piece of toast. Are you using pre-sliced bread, or are you using some, like, bouge country loaf that you're that you're cutting yourself. In this particular case, let's say loaf of bread that I'm cutting myself. Okay. You want to picture what is the final toast that you want. So for me, I like a toast that's really toasty and brown on the outside, but not dry all the way through. Like I want it to be chewy on the inside. And so what that means is you have to use a little bit of hotter heat. So I have a toaster oven that I very much love. But if you didn't have a toaster oven or even a toaster, I would probably heat my oven to about 400 degrees, which is a nice hot temperature, but not so hot that it'll burn on the outside. One of my pet peeves is over toasted bread that's dry and brittle and then like causes the roof of your mouth to like <laughs> right. come off and then you're like burnt and then it hurts no, and that, stuff. That, that's a medical condition that I've identified as Captain Crunch's complaint. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. Captain Crunch's complaint, yeah. But um, how thick do you slice the bread? Oh, I like a slice that's probably... Do you want me to get out my tape measure? Yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> okay, I would say in the like three quarters of an inch range. Now, if I had said pre-sliced bread, how would the strategy be different? The thing about pre-sliced bread is if we, if I may be so bold as to assume that it's like a store-bought loaf of bread that comes pre-sliced in a plastic bag, often breads like that have some sort of sugar added into the bread, whether it's molasses or honey. And so those sugars will help the bread brown and toast more quickly on the outside. And... If you were to take bread and butter it and put it in a on a griddle, or if you broil, uh-huh. broil, brush it with olive oil and broil it, is that still toast? Um, I would still call that toast. Toast is really just like twice baked bread. Yes, that's what I call. It. Yeah, for sure. So, like, I, I, I. You know, here we go. Here we go. We're going really deep into <laughs> semantics right now. Okay, <laughs> so. 
Sure, there's a few different ways to do them. There's a reason why we would use butter rather than oil. There was a reason why you would do it dry. There's a reason you might do it in the oven versus in a cast iron pan. But like the ultimate goal is often the same thing, which is you want that beautiful golden crust on the outside and like a soft, tender, chewy crumb. The reason why I like the word toast for that is because I've always been a poo-pooer of overly snobby like culinary terms, right? So like... I don't know, you can call it a grilled cheese sandwich or you can call it a croque monsieur. And it's pretty much the same thing, right? This is why I love Samin. She hates pretentiousness, but she can still lay down an epic discourse on the finer points of toast. Even though she's reached the highest levels of the food world, she still has an outsider's perspective. I absolutely know what it is to be different and to be made to feel different and to be very aware of that all of the time. When you grow up feeling like an outsider, can any amount of success make you feel like you belong? We'll discuss. Stick around. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. When I spoke with Samin Nostrat recently, she was at home in Berkeley. I was in New York. Samin grew up in suburban San Diego, the child of Iranian immigrants. Going to school there in the 80s, most of the other kids were white. And all they knew about Iran was something about a hostage crisis. Looking the way that I looked, you know, having a na- an unusual name that was um, hard for a lot of people to pronounce made me aware that I didn't fit in. I felt like I was always in two worlds, like going to school I wanted to be a good student. I wanted to make my parents happy. I wanted to make them proud. And I wanted to succeed. So I worked really hard and I did my best to sort of fit in. And I figured, I sort of told myself the story that if I worked really hard and sort of succeeded, that maybe nobody at school would notice, <laughs> wouldn't notice that I wasn't just like everyone else. And then coming home, my mom was always very clear to us that like we went to school in America. And when we came home, we were in Iran. And that we followed the rules of an Iranian household and we spoke Farsi and we respected our elders and we had the right manners and upbringing. And so, you know, I kind of was always, I don't know, switching it up and like code switching into the kind of two different Samins who I always was of like the person I was out in the world and the person I was at home. So the food was basically uh, uh, all Iranian in, in your home? Yes, my mom is an extraordinary cook, and she made the most delicious Persian food. My brothers and I spent 40% of our childhood in the backseat of the Volvo, just driving around Southern California in search of, you know, like the best lamb, the best cilantro, the best whatever ingredients so that my mom could make the most delicious food. What were some of your favorites? Oh, I had like, I had lists. I had lists. So (laughs) I had also, I I had phases. I had phases. Um, Probably like my most favorite food as a kid was, is called adaspolo, which is uh, lentil rice. And usually it's served with fried raisins and Persian rice um, is cooked in a really particular way so that it forms a crust at the bottom of the pot called tadig. And so it's like this crispy crust that you flip the whole thing out. And so everyone fights over the crispy bits. And what I loved about the lentil rice was that the lentils would cook into the crust. So you get like these sort of creamy, extra starchy, crusty little things in the tadig. And then um, 
I always just loved, you know, the little hit of the fried raisin and then with the yogurt. So you have like creamy, cold, sour yogurt, sweet raisin, crunchy rice, like, you know, the inside rice that's steamy. So it was just like so many different things happening. Didn't you, you did a recipe for the New York Times that I, I is on my list to make that was like it was like that tadi technique, but with pasta. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom. So that was a very Iranian thing to sort of make tadig out of anything. So that was another thing she always made that I loved was um, anytime we made spaghetti, she would put she would like mix it with the sauce and put the whole thing back in the pot. So it would form a tadig. And then you flip it upside down and it's got like a like a crispy golden brown shell on top. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I mean, fried noodles. Give me a break. So good. Before Samin started high school, her family switched school districts so she could go to the best possible public school. But as is often the case, the best public school was where the richest families lived, which meant Samin would now stick out in one more way. My mom like sat me down before she sent me to school there and she just was like, I just need to be really clear with you that you don't you are going to see a lot of stuff in this school and and the, these kids are going to have a lot of things and a kind of a lifestyle that you don't have and that we don't have and that you're never going to have. So when you come back and you're like, oh, I want such and such shoes or I want such and such car or why don't I get this? Like, remember this moment because I'm going to remind you, like, we are not those people. We do not have those things and you're, no, you're not going to get them from me. <laughs> But once Samin left home for college, she had the chance to get that stuff, or at least some part of that lifestyle, herself. I moved to Berkeley in 1997 to attend college. And in my um, freshman orientation, they told me, oh yeah, by the way, there's this fancy restaurant in town called Chez Panisse. It's like really famous. Chez Panisse was opened in the 70s by a chef named Alice Waters. It's basically the birthplace of the farm-to-table movement in America. And it's pretty fancy. I grew up in San Diego eating delicious home cooking and like fish tacos and Chinese food and pizza. So like I had no idea what a fancy restaurant or a famous restaurant was. <laughs> it just like did not compute. And then my sophomore year, I had this boyfriend and he was from San Francisco. And a big part of how we spent our time together was sort of he was showing me his like culinary sort of San Francisco. And we ate his favorite pizza and we ate his favorite ice cream. And he had always wanted to go to Chez Panisse. And I still didn't even really understand what it was. I just knew that it was a fancy, expensive restaurant. So we saved our money for seven months. We had a shoebox that we like, we would make bets and like whoever lost the bet would put the money in the shoebox or like leftover laundry quarters or whatever. And, um, it took us seven months to save 220 bucks and we showed up and like, it was really this extraordinary meal. We had beautiful salad with um, lardons and a poached egg on top. And we had guinea hen, which I had never had. It was just like a little chicken. And so when the di dessert came, it was souffle, it was chocolate souffle. And I think we kind of stuck out, you know, I was 19 years old. I was wearing a black tank top and a denim skirt and like, what's probably Berkeley's fanciest restaurant. And so I don't, I think like they obviously knew we were not regulars. And, <laughs> and also um, <laughs> when you pulled out the shoebox full of cash to pay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did go to the bank earlier the day and like chain turned in all the change for like two $100 bills and a 20. Wow. So that part we were good with. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, that would have been amazing if I were like, paid in quarters. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, don't I wouldn't put it past me. Right. Um and so (laughs) and so we um she the server brought the souffle and she said, Oh, like, would have you ever had a souffle before? And I said, No. And she said, Would you like me to show you how to eat it? And I said, Yes. And she said, Here, you take your spoon and you poke a hole and then you pour this sauce in. It was like a raspberry sauce. And she's like, every bite that way has a spoonful of sauce. So I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I was like, oh, it's really good. But you know what would make it even better? And she was like, (laughs) what? And I was like, yeah, a glass of cold milk because it was like a warm chocolatey thing. I just wanted a cold glass of milk. So she went and she brought me milk. And then she also brought us like two glasses of dessert wine to teach us the refined accompaniment. And it was just this very sweet interaction. So wait, wait, I just want to dissect this moment for a second. So even Samin the misfit who didn't have the first clue how to eat in a nice restaurant was still not so intimidated (laughs) by the experience that you were afraid to ask for cold milk. That's true. Wow, you're like really. This is like a um, hypnotherapy. Like we're really going. We're like going deep, deep in the past. That night, Samin fell in love with Chez Panisse. Partly the food, yeah, but also the floral arrangements, the service, everything about the experience. The next day, she went back. This time, looking for a job. That server she had the night before turned out to be a manager. She recognized Samin and took her resume. Samin got a job busting tables and eventually worked her way into the kitchen. Pretty soon, she was cooking at Chez Panisse. But still, Samin had bigger plans. Tell me about your manifestation journal. Oh, yeah. Do you want me to go get it when I can read some of those first ones? Yeah, that would be amazing. Okay, okay, hold on. All right. If you're not familiar with the idea of a manifestation journal, it's basically a notebook where you write down your goals. The idea being that writing them down will help manifest them. Okay. All right. I got it. It even says manifestation journal (laughs) right there on the first page. It's just like a, it's just a sketchbook. Is it all dog-eared? It's not dog-eared, but it definitely feels like, like the spine is, um, you know, that thing when you've opened a book so many times that the spine starts peeling away from the binding. How old were you when you started this journal? Um, let's see if I put a date on the first entry. Oh, 2008. So I was 28 and I'm 38. So 10 years, 10 years. So 10 years ago. And do you remember what inspired you to start this journal? I'm telling you, I think it was like a self-help website. (laughs) 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 Um, I'm not sure what I got out of it other than this wonderful manifestation journal. But um, so what, 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 uh, read me the first page. Okay, so it just says long-term, find the thing I love to do, do it well, and make enough money doing it to live comfortably. Okay, I think I'm like getting there on that one. Okay. Fall in love and have have and sustain a healthy relationship with a smart, funny, handsome, confident, caring, steady man. Mm, not yet. Has not happened. Raise at least two healthy children. Nope, has not happened. Publish. This is so specific. This is so specific. Publish four books. Popular, well-reviewed books that I am proud of by good, well-known publishing houses. Okay, well, I did one. And then in like very tiny writing at the bottom where I'm like too embarrassed to even admit to myself that it's my goal. (laughs) (laughs) This is so embarrassing. I shouldn't even admit this was not in something recorded. (laughs) I wrote in in tiny, tiny letters at the bottom. I wrote MacArthur Genius Grant. (laughs) 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 
And then like the next page is um is like just for that year. Oh, here's a good one. Get my chin hairs under control. What what's the uh, latest on that? The chin hairs are under control. It did take longer than one year though. Okay. <laughs> but what I find interesting about a lot of these entries to mean is that the success is defined partly by the, the work that you feel proud of. But also by having the work featured, there's a lot of focus on the which publications will publish it, which publishing houses, what, how will it be reviewed? Mm-hmm. Now, look, I think all, all of us want the admiration of our peers and want to be respected for our work. But I think that knowing that you had this sort of self-identification as an outsider, a person who didn't fit in, it's interesting to me that so many of your goals are about gaining acceptance for your work in the most mainstream or, or the top echelon of the world you were trying to penetrate? For me, it was sort of an echo of that thing I said earlier about being in elementary school and just trying to impress and make my parents proud and make the teachers proud. And that if I put my head down and worked hard enough, maybe they wouldn't notice that I was different. So it's sort of the same thing where if like I can infiltrate the most elite white, powerful institution, whether it's a publication or a restaurant or a university, and do my best and succeed, then there's no way that anyone can question that I belong. Samin spent years cooking at Chez Panisse and other top restaurants in Italy and the Bay Area. She was making connections in the restaurant world, but still wasn't well-known beyond that. As she gained experience, she noticed patterns. She realized that so much of good cooking comes down to the right combination of four elements. Salt, fat, acid, and heat. She set out to write a book based on this concept. It took her seven years. Twice she wrote the book and then threw it out, started again because she thought it wasn't right. Finally, she settled on a structure. It had recipes, but it wasn't really a cookbook. It was more of a cooking class in book form, using hand-drawn illustrations to explain concepts. The idea was that if you can learn how to use salt, fat, acid, and heat correctly, you can cook anything. You don't need recipes. When the book proposal was offered to publishers and they had the chance to buy the rights, they went wild for it. They loved this new way of teaching cooking, and they thought book buyers would love it too. Suddenly, all those power brokers Samin wanted to prove herself to, they wanted to meet her. And there was one change in particular that she noticed. When she met them, they all knew how to pronounce her name. In fact, she learned later that they had called her book agent in advance to make sure they got it right. And so for me to walk into like all of these rooms and these high rises and have all these people pronounce my name right, it meant that for the first time, like I mattered enough to them for them to call my agent to ask how to pronounce my name so that they would do it right and they wouldn't embarrass themselves. I couldn't believe that that had happened. And I felt so proud that I had reached that point. And now I have gone through so many shifts in the past five years and, you know, the world has shifted so much and just like I've grown up so much that I'm actually really angry about that. For me, I'm really angry that it took me until age 33, until I achieved something that some powerful, wealthy people suddenly deemed me worthy enough that that was the first time in my life that anybody cared enough to try to figure out how to pronounce my name right. I'm talking with Salmon Noserut, author of Salt, Acid, Fat, Heat. (laughs) (laughs) 
what's interesting is I, I, I do think that there is the, the mindset of like immigrants come to America. A lot of them sort of adopt a nickname that is kind of a bastardization of their given name because it's easier for Americans to pronounce. And I, I suspect that there are some people who would hear you talk about this issue and say, oh, come on, like people are trying their best. They don't mean anything by it. They never heard that name before, so they're trying to pronounce your name, and they got it wrong, but, you know, they have good intentions. What's the big deal? Wow. And so I'm curious to hear, like, what you would say to a person who thinks that. Well, I did go through a Sam phase in fourth grade. I didn't like it. It wasn't me. <laughs> so, um, so, you, you, so you experimented with that, where you went by Sam. Yeah, yeah. And I, that is my, like, coffee shop name. I will say that. <laughs> Um, but I, isn't all anybody wants to be seen and appreciated for who they are and isn't a name such a fundamental part of that? Now, at least in the worlds of food and writing, a lot more people know how to pronounce the means name. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is a bestseller. It won the James Beard Award for Best General Cookbook. Now it's being turned into a gorgeous four-part series on Netflix. Comes out Thursday. And her columns appear regularly in the New York Times. She has achieved just about all the career goals in her manifestation journal. Except no genius grant. Yet. In many ways, Samin's an outsider who has kicked down the door to the inside. But if she went back to Chez Panisse today and got that same chocolate souffle... Would she have it with the fancy dessert wine the server brought her? Or would she still ask for a cold glass of milk? Milk, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that was 20 years ago. So, like, I have been doing this for so long that I've been down all the roads, right? Like, I went down the snobby road. I went down the super, super, super do-it-by-the-book way. And I have come through out the other side where now, to me, like, the main point of eating is not to do it the best way. It's to have the most pleasure. Coming up, Samin and I switch gears to talk about a controversy roiling the world of fancy food. It involves charges of sexism, elitism, and pretentiousness. I'm not saying it's not privileged and elite. Yes, it absolutely is. And like, do I participate in that sometimes? For sure. And it all started with one very particular spoon. Stick around. Saute, you stay, because it's time for some ads. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. 
Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle, and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Welcome back to another Sporkful Reheat. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, if you want to hear what I'm eating and reading every week, you should sign up for the Sporkful newsletter. I'll give you my weekly recommendations, and so do our producers and the whole rest of our team. We also share announcements about exciting things happening with the show, when there's special discounts on my pastas, and on top of all that, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you're automatically entered into giveaways for cookbooks featured on the show, as long as you live in the U.S. or Canada. There's literally no downside. Sign up right now at sporkful.com slash newsletter. I promise we won't spam you. We're only going to send you really good stuff. Again, that's sporkful.com slash newsletter. Thanks. Now back to this week's reheat. For many years, I was unaware of the egg spoon controversy. I only learned about it recently, but it's been burning up the fancy food world for a long time. First, let me set the stage. As I said, Samin got her start cooking at Chez Panisse, the legendary Bay Area restaurant that essentially launched the local organic food movement in the 70s. Now, that movement has obviously done a lot of good, but it's also become a status symbol. Where you buy your food says something about who you are and what you can afford. Chez Panisse was founded by Alice Waters, who's still the chef and owner today. On a Saturday night, dinner there will cost you $125 a person, not including drinks. So it's pretty fancy. Although I should say, 
That's small potatoes compared to places like Grant Ackett's Alinea in Chicago or Thomas Keller's Per Se in New York, where the prefix can run over $300 per person. I haven't been to any of these places. Anyway, Alice Waters is the woman behind Chez Panisse and a mentor to Samin. In 2009, Alice was featured on 60 Minutes. When it comes to food, Alice Waters is a legend. At 65, I'll let Samin tell the story from here. At one point in the segment, she says, oh, yes, let me just cook a little breakfast. I'm going to cook some eggs and I'm going to make a little salad with the tomatoes. It was here that we realized that Alice Waters lives in a different world. I have a, a question. Where's your microwave? I don't have a microwave. How do you live without a microwave? I don't know how you can sort of live with one. She has this really beautiful hearth in her kitchen that she had put in because she loves grilling. She's an incredible sort of fire cook. So she built this fire in her kitchen hearth and took out this egg spoon, which is sort of like a, I don't know, 16th century hand forged blah, blah, blah thing. It's like, it's basically if you picture a metal spoon with a really long handle, it's meant to crack it. You crack an egg in it and then you hold this thing with this long handle over the flame and it sizzles and it fries this egg in olive oil over the flame and then you slip it out. And it's this really exquisite thing. And it's a very classic Alice breakfast. Like I would say, she's really into building the fire and making the egg. It's like she does it for herself. She does it for everyone who comes to the house. It's her favorite thing to do. But when I was sitting at home watching that segment, I literally fell off of my couch. I sort of yelped and fell off my couch because I remember thinking, oh no, what has this done? This has set back her message of sort of like spreading this this love and this appreciation for seasonality so far, at least 10 years, because it is such, it can be so perceived so easily as a really elitist maneuver, right? Like the much more accessible thing to do would have been to like pull out a cast iron pan and she has a big stack of cast iron pans in her kitchen and fry an egg in a cast iron pan because anyone can relate to that, right? Like everyone has a cast iron pan or can get one for 10 bucks at the flea market. Not everyone has a hearth in their kitchen and an egg spoon and a blah, 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 and all that stuff. And so she she got a lot of flack for it. And it was it was for me as, as a supporter of hers and as a sort of a child of hers, it was really hard to see her make that choice because I knew how it would be, how people would receive it. But the other thing about it is like, it wouldn't have been true to Al- for Alice to like, get a cast iron pan. That's what she does. That's who she is. And she wants everyone to see that and to sort of like aspire toward that. But as Samin predicted, there was a backlash. Anthony Bourdain said he found Alice Waters annoying and added, I saw her on 60 Minutes. She used six cords of wood to cook one egg. For her part, Alice Waters says of the egg spoon, I like the feeling of watching it and holding it. It's not like cooking in a pan. You just feel like you're really in charge of it. It's really primitive in a way. Eventually, that controversy died down, but then it was reignited this year when the chef and cookbook author Tamar Adler mentioned that she uses an egg spoon. And Alice Waters' daughter, Fanny Singer, started selling a hand-forged egg spoon through her website for $250. Social media blew up. It was sort of this discussion that people were unilaterally having about, I don't know, 
the silliness and like out of touchness of these silly women, you know? And I have a lot to say about elitism and privilege and certainly like how that affects the world of cooking and how it's affected me and the ways that I work to sort of combat it in my own work. But what really like busted me and made me so insane about that whole thing was that everybody seemed to take it as an opportunity to really lay into these women without having any self-awareness or any sort of taking a step back to see that there are so many tools that we consider men's tools or we consider tools of fancy cooking that cost $250 or more, which we consider to be the tools of skilled men. Give, give me an example of, a, of, a, of something you're thinking about. Uh, sure. So to me, like the main thing that came to mind was a sous vide, like an immersion circulator, which is like the sous vide machine. It's this thing that you plug into a pot of water. It sort of raises the temperature and keeps the, te- the temperature steady at a certain degree, usually a pretty low temperature, and it swirls it around in the pot. And that's how you can cook, you know, those really fancy sous eggs that are served at like Menresa, a, a fancy restaurant here in California, or or, um, or now think, Starbucks, or now at Starbucks, yes. <laughs> but first popularized by these really really fancy chefs, and like when you know, like Dan Barber, who the who's the chef of Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and is like really lauded in this industry and sort of considered a um, champion of many of the same principles that Alice is a champion of. In fact, when he was like nineteen or twenty, he he did an internship at Chez Panisse also. Like he learned a lot of his, you know, that really set him on on a path culinarily. And so Dan Barber gets like a lot of praise and acclaim for espousing the same principles as Alice. I guarantee you he's got some $250 tools in his kitchen and he doesn't get like, you know, the entire internet like losing their minds. He gets a chef's table episode. So there's just these ways where I'm like, let's take a step back, guys. Like I'm not saying let's not call out privilege and elitism, but let's do it sort of universally. Why do you think that Alice Waters has not gotten more credit? Because she's a woman. And I think there's so many things that she gets criticized for that a man would never be criticized for. And I think the fact that she's short and she has kind of a squeaky voice and she talks in these dreamy metaphors and she has these like lofty ideals just makes her a really easy target. And that's not to say that I'm never critical of her. Like I often push back, especially in private against her, but I just am always aware of how this woman who has changed so much in this country for the better, who has paved the path for so many people, including myself, really gets shortchanged and sort of laughed at and not acknowledged for the positive changes that she's made. If your first encounter with Alice Waters' egg spoon had been when you were 15 years old and you were in high school and you went over to one of your rich white friend's house and their mother was like, I got this $250 spoon that cooks an egg. <laughs> I pro- what would my reaction have been? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, that, there's a lot of ifs in that in that build up in that setup. <laughs> so, um <laughs> but I I can see two different things. I can see myself feeling two different things. At once, I would be like rolling my eyes the biggest I could have possibly rolled them. I would have been like, "What is this?" And also, I can imagine being so jealous and envious and wanting that for my own self. 
So I, I think those two often go hand in hand where you just like write off the thing that just seems so far out of reach and out of touch. But like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I like fancy things. I've always aspired to them, right? Like, and I wanted whatever the fancy thing was that like so-and-so's mother had, you know, and especially if I had been served an egg from the egg spoon and it had been the most delicious egg I had ever had, I can tell you I would have come home and put it in my manifestation journal. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of expensive kitchen appliances, Samin. I want to talk to you about toast once again. <gasps> I Did you get a fancy toaster? Well, listen, I got a little story to tell you. Okay. About uh, seven years ago, my wife Janie and I went on vacation to Florida, and we stayed in a friend's grandmother's apartment. And she had this very old GE toaster oven, old, like, chrome, metal, shiny toaster. And it made such good toast. We got home, we started looking into this toaster, the General Electric Toast R oven, not made anymore, but it turns out to have a cottage following on eBay. Oh. And so we we bought a used Toast R oven. We paid like $50 for it, all right? This is for like a 30-year-old a, a toaster. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Does it toast evenly, though? Does it work? For seven years, it gave us amazing toast. It toasted evenly. It was consistent. It heats very quickly. It it has been a dream, well worth the $50, but now it seems to be broken and only goes to one setting, which is like broil. And if you put anything in there for more than 30 seconds, it burns. And so we're going to have to get rid of this toaster. And now seven more years have gone by, and so the market— for the Toast R oven on eBay has gone up even more because there's fewer of them in circulation. And they now run 80, 80 to $100 a piece, which you can get like a fancy-ass toaster oven for a new one for $100. Uh-huh. And then I found, I found a, a vintage 1976 GE Toast R oven new, new on eBay. For $269. Are you going to get it? I texted it to my wife being like, ha ha, look what I found on eBay. Can you believe this? And she wrote back. She's like, but it's new. And Janie, like, you know, buys everything at the secondhand store. Like, the idea that she would spend $270 on a toaster is, I, like, I, it never even crossed my mind. And she's actually tempted. And we're now debating whether or not to get, to spend $270 on a quote-unquote brand-new 1976 toaster. But, like, you know, like, it's going to bring you some small amount of pleasure and joy every single day to have the toast that you know works, right? Like, and not just you, you and your wife and maybe your children, too. Just do it, Dan. It's your egg spoon. That's Samin Nosrat. Her new Netflix food documentary based on her best-selling book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, comes out this Thursday, October 11th. In it, Samin travels the world to explore the four basic elements of good cooking. I got a sneak preview. It looks beautiful, and Samin is great in it. Check it out. Next week on the show, I got a lot of food guilt, okay? I don't like it when the leftovers don't get finished. I don't like throwing out food that's expired. And I feel guilty because, well, I'll let you in on my terrible secret. I don't compost. So next week, I will attempt to take action to alleviate my food guilt. We'll see how it goes. 
please make sure you subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Go ahead, you can just hit subscribe or favorite right now. That way, you'll never miss an episode. It also helps other people discover our show. So please subscribe. Thank you. This show is produced by Ann Sandy and me. Aviva DeKornfeld is our assistant producer. Gianna Palmer is our editor. The show is mixed by Dan DeZula. We get music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rattlett. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Natambi Peters, living in Long Beach, California, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. The team that produces The Sporkful today includes me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Nora Ritchie and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman.